Welcome to From Cork with Love Adventure, the only programme from Cork, Ireland, in which you can hear what it's like to be Irish in Cork from the point of view of a totally unrepresentative man. This is Paul Amani welcoming you to the latest episode. This is a busy place today. I've come back to Moonbon Wood to give my dog Louis a walk and also to read more from Wanderlust by Rebecca Solnit, A History of Walking. I'm feeling very keen to read on about Wordsworth and Coleridge and Dove Cottage and all these places in the turn of the, uh, what was it, the turn of the 18th and 19th century, around 1800 and or 1795 to 1805. When I pulled up here today, there were more cars than I've ever seen before parked on the entrance to the wood. So we may be in for several interruptions today. Uh, Interruptions to the walk and to the reading, and we may be in for some surprises. But going back to, to what Rebecca Solnit has to say, let me just remind you that in the previous episode ended with a quote from Seamus Heaney Wordsworth at his best no less than his worst is a pedestrian poet and just in case you're listening to this for the first time and you don't know pedestrian sounds pejorative pedestrian is literally pedestrian as opposed to saying that that Wordsworth poetry moves terribly slowly Come on, Louis, this way. Oh, there's more dogs here. Here, come here. Come here. Ooh, immediately I did. Uh, there's a dog on a lead. Here, stop. Here, stop. Stop, you. Come here, you. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. That's a big dog. Yes, it is. A big man with a beard. With the... The, the dog. Get the lead on. Oh, it's tricky sometimes. Mm. Oh, stop here. Come 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 here. Whoa. There you are. There you are. Now you're fine. Now you're fine. Now you're fine. Now you can talk. Go on. Hello. Hello. Oh, he's very eager. No. Come on. Come on. Fierce experience, wasn't it? Here, come here. Take, come down. Sit. Sit. There you are. There you are. There you are. There you are. Good dog. There you are. That was a fierce bruise of a dog, wasn't it? Yeah. Right. Well. Oh. I tell you something. That was really fierce. And who knows? I hope we won't meet any more of those. Right, there we are. Just when we were getting into Seamus Heaney and clarifying that a pedestrian poet in Seamus Heaney's terms means literally a poet who walks. Right, at least I'm assuming that, but 
at his best, no less than his worst, is a pedestrian poet. Had Wordsworth been a perfect romantic poet, he would have died in, the late, in his late thirties. Still pacing back and forth at Humble Dove Cottage, leaving us the first best version of the prelude. All his early ballads and narratives about the poor, his odes and lyrics of childhood and his image as a radical intact. Unfortunately for his reputation, though happily enough for self and family, he lingered in Grasmere and then in the large house in neighbouring Rydal to the age of 80, becoming increasingly conservative and decreasingly inspired. I can't say I'm, I could you know, place in terms of his life which bit of poetry he wrote at the age of 20 and which he wrote at the age of 50. See, this is teaching me what I don't know. One might say that he went from being a great romantic to a great Victorian. And the transition required much renouncement. Though he did not keep faith with his early politics, he kept faith with his walking. And oddly, it is his legacy, not as a writer, but as a walker, that carries on on the joyful insurrection of his early... that carries on the joyful insurrection of his early years. One of his own twinges of democracy came in 1836, when he was 66. He had taken Coleridge's nephew walking on a private estate, when, as one biographer recounts it, the lord who owned the ground came up and told them they were trespassing. Much to his companion's embarrassment, William argued that the public had always walked this way and that it was wrong of the lord to close it off. The nephew recalled that Wordsworth made his point with somewhat more warmth than I either liked or could well account for. He had evidently a pleasure in vindicating those these rights and seemed to think it a duty. Louis! Oh dear. Where was I vindicating his duty? Another version situates the confrontation at Lowther Castle where Wordsworth, Coldridge's nephew and the lord in question were dining. The latter declared that his wall had been broken down and he would have horsewhipped the man who did it. Quote, the grave old bard at the end of the table heard the words. The fire flashed into his face, and rising to his feet, he answered, I broke your wall down, Sir John. It was obstructing an ancient right of way, and I will do it again. I am a Tory, but scratch me on the back deep enough, and you will find a whig in me yet. Oh, dear. 
passionate about walking. I wonder, I wonder on what act, on what, on what issues, on what political issues he became a Tory as opposed to a Whig. I wonder was it the 1832 Act? I don't know. So many things for me to try to find out. Of all the other romantics, only de Quincey seems to have had a lifelong passion for walking, comparable to Wordsworth's. And though it is impossible to measure pleasure, it is possible to say something about effects. Walking was neither a subject nor a compositional method for the young writer in the way it had been for the older. His innovations were elsewhere. Morris Marple's credits him with being the first to go on a walking tour with a tent, which he slept in during an early sojourn in Wales to save money. The beginning of the outdoor equipment industry shows up here in the special coats Wordsworth and Robert Jones had a tailor make for them for their continental tour. In Coleridge's walking sticks, in De Quincey's tent, in Keats' old, uh, in Keats' odd travel outfit. Wow. Well, I've learned something now that's useful. So tents were first uh, first used by people, by walkers, in about, I don't know, 1820 or something like that. De Quincey's best writing about walking was about prowling the streets of London as a destitute youth. A very different kind of walking and writing. His fellow, fellow essayist, William Hazlitt, wrote the first essay on walking, but it began another genre of walking literature rather than extending the tradition Wordsworth took up, and it depicts walking as a pastime rather than an, an avocation. Okay, here, stand gently here. You're clearly walking faster than me. Oh, sure. Keep up with her. <laughs> yeah, she's terrific. How old is she? Three. Three, and this fella's three as well. Yeah. Yeah, God, they're, they're both beautiful dogs. What kind of a dog is yours? Uh, she's a Vishla, a Hungarian Vishla. Vishla, a Hungarian Vishla? Yeah, she's like the Weimaraner, they're cousins, you know? Ah, yeah. I wondered about that. My son has a Weimaraner, yeah. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, a Vishla. This uh, is an English setter. Oh, really? An Eng oh, well, it, 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 strictly speaking, it's a Llewellyn setter, but yeah. uh, that's an English setter. Beautiful. God. Fine well, bit of energy anyway. They're really? getting on well. This yeah. fella has loads of it. I know, yeah. I know. We got this fellow in a um, rescue uh, really? centre, but when he, for the first few months, he never jumped up on anybody. Yeah. He, and recently, I don't know whether he's just become more relaxed. He's, he's yeah, more like. He wants to be up here. He's like. more like your fella. He's more like your fella. Fine, so he's getting more relaxed. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay, walk on, because oh, I won't keep pace with you or anything. I'm just... Ah, uh, no, it's fine. It, honestly, it's terrific. We'll just walk along here gently, yeah? Yeah, we will, Louis. Yeah, come here. Come here. Come here. Come on, you walk with me now, right? This fellow essayist, William Hazlitt wrote the first essay on walking. I believe I did that at school. 
and writing. His fellow essayist, sorry, hold on. But it began another genre of walking literature rather than extending the tradition Wordsworth took up. And it depicts walking as a pastime rather than an avocation. Shelley was too aristocratic and an anarchist, and Byron too lame and aristocrat to have much to do with walking. They sailed and rode instead. Coleridge, on the other hand, had a decade of avid walking, 1794 to 1804, which is reflected in his poetry from that time. Even before he met Wordsworth, he set out on a walking tour to Wales with a friend named Joseph Hawkes, and then another tour in Somerset in southern England with his fellow... Somerset is in the West Country. Okay, I'm not going to pick holes with Rebecca Solnit, but anyway. Another tour in in Somerset in southern England with his fellow poet and future brother-in-law, Robert Southley. Southey, sorry. I haven't read any poetry by Robert Southey. In 1797, Words, Coleridge and Wordsworth began their extraordinary collaborative years with walks in the same part of southern England. In one of those tours, when Dorothy joined them, Colesworth, 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 Coleridge composed his most famous poem, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, which is, like his friend's work of the time, a poem about wandering and exile. He and the Wordsworths walked together many more times. There was the epochal walking tour in the Lake District with William Wordsworth and his John, during which Wordsworth decided to return to this scene of his childhood. And there were many shorter walks after Coldridge and Southey moved to Keswick in the north of that district as well as one final blighted tour of Scotland with William Dorothy and a donkey cart. The two men got on each other's nerves, split up and never quite resumed resumed their great friendship. During the course of a solitary and athletic tour of the lakes, Coleridge also became the first recorded person to reach the summit of Scafell Peak. Although... He lost some of the glory he might have achieved with this difficult climb by getting stuck on his descent and then tumbling down the mountain. After 1804, Coleridge went on no more long walks, although the links between walking and writing are neither so explicit nor so profuse in his work as in his friends. The critic Robin Jarvis does point out that Coleridge ceased to write blank verse when he ceased to walk. These walking tours on the part of poets who would not walk much later suggest that there was indeed an emerging fashion for travelling on foot. Certainly the very unpoetic literature of the guidebook began to address itself to walkers at this point, and the very notion of a walking tour suggests that the parameters of how to walk and what it meant were beginning to be established. Like the garden stroll, the long walk was acquiring conventions of both meaning and doing. This is easily seen in John Keats' one great experiment with walking. In 1815, the young Keats set out on a walking tour for the sake of poetry, suggesting that such an excursion was was a familiar rite of passage as well as a refinement of sensibility. I purpose within a month to put my knapsack on my back 
and make a pedestrian tour through the north of England and part of Scotland and to make a sort of prologue to the life I intend to pursue, that is to write, to study and to see all Europe at the lowest expense. I will clamour through the clouds and exist, he wrote. And soon afterward he wrote to another friend, I should not have consented to myself these four months tramping in the highlands, but that I thought it would give me more experience, rub off more prejudice, use me to more hard ship, identifying finer scenes, load me with grander mountains and strengthen more my reach in poetry than would stopping at home among books, even though I should read Homer. In other words, roughing it and growing acquainted with mountains was poetic training. Yet like the walkers who came after him, he wanted only so much hardship and experience. He turned back from Ireland, appalled by the harsh poverty on that oppressed island. I, I had no idea he even went to Ireland. Oh, another thing to Google. And in reading of this rejection of experience, one thinks of a key moment in the prelude and evidently in Wordsworth's life. He was walking in France with the revolutionary soldier, Michel Beaupuy. They encountered a, quote, hunger-bitten girl who crept along, quote, end quote, a lane. And Beaupuy explained that she was the reason they were fighting. Wordsworth had connected walking to both pleasure and suffering, to politics and scenery. He had taken the walk out of the garden with its refined and restricted possibilities. But most of his successors wanted the world in which they walked to be nothing but a larger garden. Now that, I must admit, surprises me. I thought we were going to build more on top of what Wordsworth brought in. But now it seems Wordsworth was an aberration. Wordsworth was a, a special person who, much more than anybody else, combined the writing about walking as pleasure and politics. Yeah, pleasure and suffering, she calls it. But I guess politics is all about suffering anyway. How to deal with suffering, how to deal with disadvantage, how to deal with loss, how to deal with prevention and obstructions and so on. But thus ends, that is the end of a chapter which has been called The Legs of William Wordsworth. And that takes us to the end of chapter 7. And that takes us to page 118. And we're going to move on next to a title, a title in, to a, a chapter entitled A Thousand Miles of Conventional Sentiment, the Literature of Walking. Well, I thought we were already in the literature of walking. But there's clearly more to the literature of walking than what we've heard so far. End of chapter 7. That was from Cork with Love Adventure, sponsored by Nobody. This is your host, Paul Omani, saying I hope it was worth your while listening. Bye for now.